I'm Robert Wade uh, at LSE. I'm chairing this um, screening, followed by a panel discussion. I've been asked uh, several times over by the distributor to say to you that if you like this film, be sure to tell all your friends and family <laughs> to go and see it, because it has just started to be screened commercially in London. Um, after the film, we will have a shortish discussion with, uh, beginning with a, with, well, with you all, but also uh, with a panel comprising of um, Bronwyn Curtis sitting down here in the front. Let me just uh, say a little bit about her and the other panelists. Bronwyn is a senior advisor at HSBC. She's um, a member of the Times uh, Shadow Monetary Policy Committee, um, and most important of all, she's one of the governors of LSE. Um, and the second uh, panelist is Jan. Oh, I'm sorry, I've just immediately blocked your name. Danielson. Danielson, sorry. Jan Danielson, who is in the finance department at LSE. So um, both of our panelists are experts in one way or another in financial markets. Um, this film is about the inside workings of financial markets, or more exactly, financial firms. And just finally, I'll mention that Nigel Andrews, one of my favorite film reviewers who reviews for the Financial Times, gave this film four stars, four out of five. He almost never gives five. Okay. Okay, so um, we, I found that an absolutely spellbinding film, and I can understand why Nigel and Andrews gave it four stars. Just before we um, open it up for discussion, um, one announcement, which is that uh, this book, by Thomas Frank called Pity the Billionaire. Pity the Billionaire is being uh, launched, so to speak. He is talking about this argument, which is about the Republicans and the Tea Party and his way of thinking in the United States on the 8th of February here at LSE. And there will be a discussion about this book. It's part of the same sort of family as the, um, as the film. So the 8th of February. Okay, so just to remind you, we have Bronwyn Curtis, the senior advisor to HSBC, and Jan Danielson, the, in the finance department at LSE. Both of them have uh, spent many years working in and studying financial markets. And so the format will be that they will each uh, say whatever they want to say for five minutes each or so, and then we can just take it from there. Well, thank you very much. Um, I actually, I enjoyed it. I did fall asleep, which um, is, uh, is really something. Um, I did, when I thought about it, um, I have worked in banking a long time, and I just want to say, before I say anything at all, I'm not representing the views of HSBC or any other bank, the views are my own. Um, and. I have seen some of those behaviours. Um, I don't think I've ever seen them um, 
in quite that way. I mean, there were some parts, if something, I think it would have leaked a long time before that, they wouldn't have made it uh, to the morning before the market would have known about it and they would never have got that paper away. But that's just a reality check. I mean, when I think about it, I think about things like, you know, Enron. Remember, the smartest guys in the room? If you go back a bit further, though, Michael Lewis, writing about Goldman Sachs in the early 90s, I think it was. Salomon Brothers. Salomon Brothers, sorry, before Goldman Okay, Salomon Brothers, you know, the masters of the universe, and those behaviors were depicted in there. So I guess what I, I sort of feel is, is this about bankers, or is this about the behavior of people in conditions where there's a lot of money involved and they can make a lot of money. I think what you've seen... Or lose a lot of money. Or lose a lot of money. Well, I say make a lot of money because I think what happened is that in the 90s, you did see bankers making money, but not the sort of money that they really made since 2000. And because we had a credit bubble and because banks made a lot of money during that period, I think they did feel, really feel, some of, some of them, that they were masters of the universe. They took on a lot of risk, they took on a lot of leverage because money was very cheap and they were making a lot of money. Of course, as it's a bubble, it did burst and actually in that film there were a number of situations where you, you, they talked about other crises. And I think that that's important. This does come around and around. I think it's just that this crisis has been much worse than others. But I actually thought that um, in terms of a reality check, yes, there were some things you could question, but I thought it was quite good. Yeah. Now, in the 70s, we had movies talking about earthquakes and sinking cruise ships. More recently, we had movies talking about global warming, and now I guess it's the time to finance the disaster movie. I guess maybe after last week's weekend, they'll go back to Poseidon and, and, and go back to cruise ships. You could have taken, you could have taken this entire movie, almost the entire plot, the characters, the behavior, everything else, and transported it onto any number of disaster scenarios we've seen in movies throughout, throughout times. It's nothing about money, it's not about financial system, all it does is provide a rather melodramatic settings to a whole bunch of human emotions. Now, if you, go, if you then go back to the financial aspect of it, of course, I mean, uh, as you just said, I mean, in a, big, in a big financial institution, this is too simplistic. People would have noticed. But that said exactly what these people were up to and how they reacted to it. We've seen it a number of times before in history. And clearly, I mean, the crisis we are seeing now, of course, we, the, the tendency is to think this is the worst of times. People are very far from being the worst of times if you look at history. We've seen so many worse financial crises. We always come out of them, always the same thing again and again. And this, this bank, and, and this is the nature of the financial system. This is the nature of how we deal with money. And this will happen again and again and again. So, the financial story is boring and typical, and you, you can find millions of parallels, and the human story is a disaster story. I mean, I thought the movie was rather dull. Can I just ask you, which crises are you thinking, I mean, since the Second World War, 
since the Second World War, which crises are you thinking of, of as being, in some sense, worse than the one that we have been in since 2007 or eight? I mean, the, I think, of course, we, it, it is, one should not limit oneself to after World War II, of course, because the, we had a financial system of this nature going back 150 years, so things you take a whole history of financial crisis. If you take this country, I think you've been a whole lot worse off in 1977, 1976, 1963, 1955, if memory serves, big financial crisis global in 1973, uh, in the financial markets incident they mentioned in 1987, and this is just the UK history if you go, if you go back before the war. And in our lifetime, the city of London had only three days of working because of power cuts. Mm -hmm. I mean, th this is nothing compared to bad events in my lifetime. Well, I think in terms of financial events, though, um, I think this is... Uh, sorry. I think in terms of financial events, um, I think this is... I mean, I've been through quite a lot of these. 87 was not nearly as bad as this. I think the fact that this is continuing over a long period of time and that the tools that the central bankers, that the policy makers have got less to, left to deal with it are very few. So I think that we are not you know, through it by any means. So I think that this one is much worse. I mean, that doesn't relate to the film in particular, but I do think that this is much worse. And the fact is that uh, these complex financial instruments um, really, people, a lot of people didn't understand what they were doing, and that's one of the things the film does show up. Can I just ask a question? Yeah. Um, I just, um, yes, I'm Jeremy Grant from the Financial Times. Um, and I thought it was a very good film, um, but I thought that it, one of the key things that it failed to do, which would have been um, a key part of a takeaway for us all, is what exactly did they do which was so catastrophically wrong and got, and got them on the wrong side of the trade. Now, I don't mean that we could have had 10, 15 minutes of incredibly boring detailed description in the film. That's not what I mean. But it gets to this whole point of the fact that so much of finance needs to be demystified. And one of the reasons why a lot of the people in this room, including myself, and I, eat, I work for a newspaper which is supposed to be projecting an understanding of this, don't understand really, really, really what happened in the financial crisis, even now I suspect a lot of people, is because there hasn't been enough uh, demystif demystification of it. And I think the film slightly fell down on that. I thought it was very good. It very neatly pointed out the fact that the older guys in the trading room hadn't the first clue what they were looking at on the trading screen, and the young guys did. That was great, but they didn't take it uh, the, the next step, which would have been to have actually exposed it in very simple terms such that you as a viewer could come away and be even more shocked and dumbfounded as to how this could have happened. I thought that was, I, would just, I suppose it's not really a question, it's just more of an observation. There wasn't enough demystification of it, actually, I thought, and that would have been really useful. I think the Financial Times is your own Gillian Tett is one of the great demystifiers of this in terms of what, and also for that matter, Martin Wolf. Um, can, I, can I also suggest, if you read uh, um, um, Michael Lewis's other book, more recent book, on um, The Big Short, yeah. actually I thought that that 
uh, I know people, lay people who read it and thought that that really helped them understand yeah. what was going on, but I agree with you. Okay, I'm, I'm wondering, I'm just wondering if there are people um, who have been working in financial markets, such as in Lehman Brothers, for example, um, through the crisis, if, if you want to come in uh, now and, and uh, say something about how close to your own experience the picture in the film was, is there anybody who wants to come in on that theme? Nobody? Nobody from Lehman Brothers? <laughs> Can I add a little bit yes. on this question? Of course, I mean, if you take your own newspaper, in 1897 they had an article bemoaning, bemoaning the fact that all the smartest people in the United Kingdom went to work in the city of London and they didn't build any ships, they built financial products. So I mean, this is nothing new. In 1897? 1897. 1897, yeah. So there's nothing new about this. But the product, to take your specific question, in a way, I don't really think it would have made any difference whether they had explained the product or not. What it was is a, the way they depicted it as a box standard uh, CPO, a structured credit pro uh, product. The, they had misunderstood the risk in it, uh, the, way, the, the way people did, and the models didn't, and, and, and the models were miscalibrated, did not pick up on the fact that the risk was building up, the exposure was building up all the time, and they thought everything was fine. It was really a product of the type that we, we teach in our courses to undergraduate students. I mean, this is yeah, I think that's right, but I think they could have taken a little bit further and explained it a bit more. I think they slightly skirted that unnecessary bit of detail, actually, without going in, as I say, excruciating detail in the explanation. is slightly skirted, that was simply my point. And had they had they just taken it one step further, you would have come away thinking, bloody hell, they did that. And you didn't. Actually, the best description I thought was in a BBC series for the love of money about the Andolini brothers. They had a two-minute segment. It's exactly nailed to what was going on in the context of Okay, you wanted to come in. Actually, I disagree. Just, just I'm sorry, Toby Chambers, uh, We Care Foundation. Uh, I kind of disagree a little bit because at the end they were kind of um, agreeing that they were selling shit, really. And they, their values that they'd originally placed on the products weren't, weren't actually worth what they were. And coming on that big short, I mean, this is a good case that um, John Paulson at the time was sort of shown to be a big hero. But to be honest, you know, when he, from all I've read, he actually had some sort of um, hand in actually putting together some of those um, um, mortgage-backed securities. And to my mind now, looking back on it, he wasn't so clever. It was just insider dealing, really. Yes. Uh, did you want to Um, hi, my name is uh, William Wong. Um, I'm a former visiting fellow here. Watching that film actually makes me think it seems very, very yesterday because the world has moved on tremendously since 2007 and 2008. Um, but what I was going to ask you is, um, I remember exactly a year ago on the front cover of the January 2011 issue of the Harvard Business Review, it says, how to fix capitalism. Now, a year on, I'm not sure whether the brightest brains across the world have actually sorted the problem. But we've sort of moved on from that agenda. Um, there's now real threat of the breakup of the Eurozone and uh, talking of um, a Greek default. And, and I think it's really easy to, to keep uh, hearing politicians say to us, we're all in this together. Now, I only have a problem. I don't know where we're going. 
Um, I just wonder what your insights might be. I'm sure it, this stress and anxiety pervades through different tiers of society. Whatever your profession, whatever your, your, your social strata might be. It's very unsettling. And so the question is? Just wonder what your views are. Um, because it's all very well. I mean, you, know, you have the Occupy uh, movement. All I sense is anti this and that. And no one, we all talk about a lack of leadership, whether it's our government or the IMF or whatever, or the Eurozone. No one has been able to actually say this is what we need to do. And the success, successive bailouts are just completely unsustainable. I certainly think the centre-left has been conspicuously missing in action in terms of developing a, a, a narrative um, for a decent capitalism. But do you want to come in on that? Uh, I mean, it is very worrying, the, the people dimension. I, I couldn't agree more, and I think that one of the biggest problems in getting agreement in the Eurozone is that you know, you really want the German people to pay for the periphery. And the periphery are being put under such stress in terms of the austerity packages and so on that, you know, you will get, and we've seen already, some riots on the streets in some of these countries. So I think there is, is a huge dimension that is there already. People are not talking about it as much at the moment because I think the problems right now are about can we keep the Eurozone together? So I'm not saying that, and, and this is not going to go away for a long time because really we're just seeing a shift in the world so that we're seeing all of the growth in emerging markets or what were emerging markets, they've sort of a lot of them have emerged now, um, and the Western world actually will be have very low growth for a very long time. So it's not going to get better even if the Eurozone stays together. In a way, I think you asked two different questions. What is being done to fix capitalism and what's going on in Europe? So I think they're really separate questions. Uh, on, the, on the capitalism question, the, there is, there's, a, there's a lot of effort in a lot of places on how to improve the rules of the game, how to improve the, the regulatory structure, how to improve the legal structure, etc. There's a lot of people working on this. I mean, this is not something that happens overnight. But this, this is all happening, you see this coming out in the Basel Free Accords and various other initiatives. So I think the authorities and the banks have really stepped, stepped in and are doing their best to improve the system. So, so, so a lot is done on that front. On the Euro crisis, it's not a crisis of capitalism, it's a crisis of politics. It is European governments, not financial institutions, not capitalism, European governments create an unsustainable policy and unable to find a political solution to the problem. It's a political problem. To give one example of the bailouts, you said they're unsustainable. It's not really true. If you look at the US or the UK, the Bank of England and the Fed, they had printed money to the tune of 12 times the GDP to buy government securities of those countries. Bank of England and the Fed had bailed out those two countries. This is not possible in the Eurozone. If they could do that, they would magically come up with a trillion and a half euros, a trillion and a half euros and solve the Eurozone crisis. Just the money printing done in this country and in the US was preventing that is politics. If I could change our back something very sorry. Just an addition directly to Robin. Just just a second. Um, 
the only I did, didn't think I was very poor maybe, uh, I, but I had one moment in it which was interesting and I thought it away my interest Bronwyn there was one character who actually had seen it coming like many of us did the non-financial people saw this coming a long while ago it was never hard to predict and then there was one character it was woman actually who said that I gave you warning many times it wasn't developed as a point. It would have been interesting to have a story about people who said this was coming. There are many, many of them. The idea that the Queen raised uh, the LOC about nobody foreseeing this is not true. Many, many people said the kind of idiots running the system were going to cause that problem. Did you notice that? There, there are other people wanting to come in, but uh, can we just... Hello. So yeah, my name is Piotr Kiemsapovsky. I'm actually a solicitor. So on your point Can you of speak the, up a bit. Yeah. Uh, Hello. So uh, my name is Piotr Kiemsapovsky. I'm actually a solicitor. So I actually coming back to your institutional point. My question is about the human factor. So I remember in 2004 I did my master's on comparative corporate governance, and I remember speaking to a very high up person in Kraft Foods, asking them. It's all fine that we have this corporate, this legal safeguards from people crossing the lines. But do you actually, when you recruit people for top position, do you actually stress test them also psychologically? You know, will they break the legal rules? Because you know, the rules are only so good as the people who uphold them or not uphold them. And my question, therefore, is, which also left, was left unanswered in the movie, when they say, well, your credibility will be gone. Obviously, Goldman did a lot of what these people did, and their credibility is still not gone in the sense that people still buy from them. So my question is, do people completely disregard the, the moral aspect, the like, I just cheated you, I just sold you worthless crap, and you bought it, and I still trade with you? Or, or what's, how, how is it sustainable? How, how is it sustainable that people still then trust the people that, that got them on the ride, so to speak? And to what extent also <coughs> internal policies building the stress testing of the people rather than you know the policy itself. Do you Bronwyn, do you want to comment on either of those two? Yes, let me um, come back to you. Let me let me just comment on this this one. It's um, I think it's difficult in any organization. You know they you do set up I mean I've passed so many exams, you know, to be to be registered so that I can give advice and do all these things. But, you know, when people are, I think, put in stressful situations or difficult situations, or they have to make money, and, and I'm not just talking about banking here, or it may not be banking, it may be, be something else. You know, they do react differently, but people have short memories. And Henry Blodgett, who was the analyst um, and, and that was the crisis we had in the equity markets where analysts were giving advice which was completely contrary to, their, to what they really thought just so the firm could sell equity paper or whatever it was. He now runs his own firm. He's quoted regularly on television. People have sort of forgotten. And I think it does happen. That, that people do have short memories about things and it's not just in finance. So, and I do, it, it is quite difficult to know how people will react. doesn't matter how many rules you put in place, there is always going to be the road trader. And I think of um, Madoff, you know, 
who would have thought that someone would have set up something quite like that? So <coughs> giving people psychological tests, I'm not sure whether you would pick it up either. And, and I think just on your point, um, it was very interesting that they had a woman as their chief risk officer. I think it's just very interesting that they had a woman in the film at all. They probably needed a woman just to have a woman because... Lehman's CRO was a woman. Okay, but it, it, well that's true, but it's so unusual. She's probably the only one that was in the market because it's so unusual at that level that there are, that there are women. Um, so I was a bit cynical about it, I have to say, when I saw her. Yeah. There was just a yes. little bit of the debut work, work hard to your mentioning. We also hit the early negotiations responsible for the model. On the Demi Moore character he was asking about, the, risk the, 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 the chief risk officer, I mean, the, what, whatever title they gave her, they also hinted earlier in the movie that she was partially responsible for the model. So she was not blameless. I mean, she may have had a conflict of interest. I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean that's, the model. That's really what they were. I, 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 the impression I got out of it. Uh -huh. uh, yes, we'll just go for another few minutes and then we'll finish. So I'll make this quick uh, since it's Jeremy Grant again. Jeremy. I, actually, I thought one of the things the film brought out very well was this question of what on earth does what they were doing have with the real world? And you s I picked out three things which I thought were brilliantly done cinematically. One was the scene in the lift with the risk officer and the other guy and the cleaning lady in the middle, which was beautifully done. And then there was, the, obviously there was the theme of the dog, I mean that was, which was actually on Sam's mind the whole time. And then also um, Al uh, Eric explaining that he built this bridge. And that was, I think, and there were a couple of other moments like that if you think back, and I thought that was an absolutely key takeaway of the whole thing. I think that's one way in which this crisis is rather different from earlier ones because we're now in a situation where over the 2000s at least finance has come to get money by financing finance. Finance, finance, finances, finance. That's financialization, the process of financialization. And the other side of that is finance not going into investment, into R&D, at least not to the same extent it was in the 1990s. And so there's this sense of the financial <coughs> sector sort of floating off like a, like a hot air balloon with lots of very rich people involved and getting somehow magically getting huge profits by transacting in the financial sector <coughs> itself. I'm sure you would disagree with that, Jan. Uh, but um, uh, just one final question, then we'll end. Yes, and you are? Um, you have to speak up. I'm Marina Kakuratu, I'm just a civil engineer, just having... A civil engineer. Uh, I would like to ask if there is any culture after all these, uh, after all these events to bankers and to financial people. Is there any new culture? Okay, so, so the, the, the question is in response to this great uh, crisis, this long recession, has there been any change in the culture and the norms <coughs> which prevail in these big financial firms? Yeah, I, mean, I mean in moral, in ethics. Yes, in norms, in, in morality and ethics. 
I mean, I mean, finance has never been moral. Just to give you, a, just to give you a small analogy, I was just looking. I, I was reading history this morning, and on World War One, and I, I realized that German creditors were paying money to British creditors via Switzerland throughout the war. So they were they were contravening the national laws by transferring money, and and throughout the entire history of, of this country. They continued trading with all the enemies they were fighting, be the Netherlands or France or be the financial markets always continue. That tells you a lot about nationalism and morality in the financial system. I think the short answer to your question is it's business as usual. I just want to say, I think it's not business as usual, but not for the reasons that you were talking about and you were talking about. It's just that the regulatory environment has changed so much that it's changing the business models of the investment banks. And um, firms like Goldman Sachs, which were mostly proprietary trading, deal-making, um, are having to change their business models because the regulatory environment is forcing that. And it's also, you know, there are so many rules and they're so strict now that actually it is quite difficult for people to and not to know that whatever they're doing, if it's not right, is immoral. I mean, we all know, we've all you know done, but I think that's the change in the business model that's being forced. I'm not sure whether that's good or bad, by the way. Okay, and um, one problem I think with with the film is that it fits in with this current. Um, sort of consensus that the deep drivers, the, the causes of the crisis of, fi of financial fragility underlying it was to do with deregulation of finance. And that seems to me to be just a, a rather a, a delimited part of the problem. And it ignores deep drivers such as rising income inequality. And there's a very good film which was actually previewed in this year in the same room, uh, what about was it six months ago, nine months ago, called The Flaw, F-L-A-W, after Alan Greenspan's testimony to Congress in late 2008 that he had discovered a flaw in his ideology. Um, this film, The Flaw, is all about the relationship between rising income inequality and financial fragility tipping into financial crisis. It seems very Un unpromising as a subject for an entertaining film, but actually it is a very good film. It's a documentary, and it's uh, not only very informative, it's also in places extremely funny. So look out for the floor. Thank you very much. Thank you to the panel. Thank you.